Good morning. Let's get our Bibles out and open to James chapter 5. If one exciting way to start by hearing the testimonies of Josh and Aubrey and they got baptized in the first service and um, it's just a wonderful reminder of the goodness of God. It's working, his, the power of His Spirit, regardless of the circumstances or situations we may be facing around us. So, James chapter 5, we are going to look at the last passage in our series in James. We're not going to finish the series today, though. We will come back next week and we will look at this passage again because we cannot uh, look at this passage without first having the conversation we're about to have. So, um, <clears throat> we will do the preliminary work this morning, and then next week we will finish our 16-week journey through uh, James's letter. So, you know, there's times in your life where you, you know, you say something, certainly for me, well, I say something publicly, and I think, you know, well, good, that's the only time I'm ever going to have to say that. And then, lo and behold, here I am, and I have to say it again. Even seems crazy. So, here we go. You ready? I did not, nor will I ever, punch my wife in the face. So if you see her, then you will notice that she has uh, two black eyes, and I had nothing to do with that. Now you would think that saying that one time a couple years ago would be the only time I ever had to say that. But here we are, two black eyes again. This time the culprit would be her cell phone. She said yesterday, she said, oh, I dread going to church. Everybody's going to ask me what happened. I said, don't worry, honey, I'll take care of that. I'll take care of that for you. So when you see my beautiful bride, just know she's just a tad bit klutzy. Didn't have anything. I'm getting a shirt that says I didn't do it. I'm not going anywhere with her because people give me the stink eye bad. Okay, James chapter 5, page 1389 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you'll need to read along with us. Let's pray and then we'll jump in together. Let's pray. Father, we come before your perfect and errant Word. We thank you for what you will say to us today. What a joy it is to gather around your Word we thank you for the celebration of baptism. We thank you for an opportunity to praise your name. God, now we pray that you'll protect our minds from distraction, that you'll use your Holy Spirit to take your word, to give us ears to hear, to implant it in our heart, and to change us the way you and only you know that we need to be changed. Speak to us, God, we pray, that we might glorify you by the hearing and the doing of your word. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you know James is writing um, 
as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's writing to a group of Christians that have been dispersed all over uh, the region because of persecution and calamity and chaos. So the, the original hearers of James's letter would have been people uh, who would say life as they know it or what they would consider to be normal has vanished into chaos. Uh, they have left their homes, left what's familiar to them. They're facing great persecution as we've seen over these weeks. And so James writes this letter to explain to them how to live as a faithful Christian, uh, essentially in a world gone crazy. Now, like Aubrey said, I mean, it's got to kind of, you know, it it sort of checks your heart up a little bit when uh, uh, Aubrey just graduated from high school this past year. So to hear her say, you know, she looks around the world and she, you know, sees the world around her in chaos and, you know, that's not something that we necessarily, um, you know, we just don't expect to see that coming out of the, the, the mouths of, of our kids. But it's the reality in which we live in. And if you remember, we actually started this series in the book of James the week before anybody had ever heard of what is now known as COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And so God had a plan and a purpose, and every week we've seen how timely and applicable the book of James has been, and it's no different as we come to the very final section. Now, when you come to uh, a passage of Scripture, basically, especially in the book of James, because it's like New Testament wisdom literature, it's it reads like the book of Proverbs in that in the book of Proverbs you jump from one topic to the next topic to the next and it could seem disconnected, although they're all interwoven together. It's the same thing in James's writing. And so when you come to a text of Scripture, you basically have two types of text. You have uh, a text that is hard to understand, and so you got to do some studying or some clarification to figure out what does this text mean? Or you have a text that's very straightforward and simple to understand, yet it's hard to apply. And it's the second category that this section of Scripture falls into. It's very straightforward. You wouldn't read it and think, well, what's he talking about? You, you won't read it and think, well, I don't know what he means. It's totally straightforward, and yet it is extraordinarily elusive because it is so very difficult to live out. So let's read together James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, 
and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Why is this passage of Scripture so difficult to actually experience and live out? Well, let's, let's break this information into three categories. Okay? If you have your listening guide, you can get it out. Category number one will be problems. Like problems like I'm having with my iPad right now. Problems. Category two will be solutions. Category three will be outcomes. Problems, solutions, outcomes. Now, problems. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 13. Is anyone suffering? That's a problem. Is anyone cheerful? Well, that might be a problem. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, is anybody sick? That's a problem. If anyone wanders, that's a problem. Then there's solutions. Well, if, if that's true, then let him pray. Or if this is true, let him sing psalms. Or, you know, apparently... Zach's job is to rid us of our cheerfulness. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Or verses uh, 16 says, confess your trespasses to one another. And then the last two verses are about being in community and pursuing one another. Those are all solutions. And then you have these, these outcomes. If you apply these solutions to these problems, then the outcomes are you're healed or you're saved, or you're forgiven, or you're restored, or you're rescued, right? Well, here's what I want you to see about these three categories. The problems are universal. Everyone faces these problems. See, it's not, this isn't, Christians aren't the only ones that get sick. Everyone gets sick. Everyone in the world faces these problems. They're universal problems. Okay, the outcomes are universally desired. In other words, everyone who gets sick wants to be healed. They don't want to be sick unless they're insane. People who have done wrong want to be forgiven. That's, so they're universal problems, and then the outcomes are universally des desired. But here's what makes this so difficult. It's the solutions. It's the middle you see, the reason we can't get from category one to category three is because we can't get through category two. Now, let's think about this for a second. What do these solutions have in common? What do, do praying, singing praise, calling for the elders, confessing sin to one another, 
pursuing one another. What do all these things have in common? They're all actions of dependence. In other words, you don't pray unless you, you don't pray about something you can fix yourself. You pray because you need help. You don't praise a God that you don't need. You praise a God that you're dependent on, that you need. You don't call the elders to come and to pray for you if you don't have anything wrong. Don't have, you don't pursue people unless you realize that people are in need of being pursued. They can't solve their own problems. It's all, they're all actions of dependence. Dependence upon God. And we don't like being dependent. We don't want to admit that we get to a place in our life where we've exceeded our capacity or ability to resolve our situation or our problem. Now, why are we so dependence resistant? Because, see, dependence is the posture that we need. It's sort of like dependent, a dependent posture is like the snow leopard. It's almost impossible to find. There are very few pictures have ever been taken of this elusive animal that never comes out and it's so cautious and careful and stealthy. That's a posture of dependence. Why? What makes it so hard? What makes it so elusive? Dependence is elusive because it requires weakness. And weakness is something that we realize, wait a minute. If there's anything we want to avoid, it's weakness. Or the appearance of weakness. Or anything to do with weakness. You see, if all these problems are universal, they're universally faced, if all these solutions are, if all these outcomes are universally desired, then wouldn't it make sense that these solutions to these problems would be something that would be universally experienced? But they're not. They're not. There's something that, and listen, they're not even universally pursued. And why? Well, I'll spend the next 15 minutes trying to convince you of what I know to be true. If I've learned anything in two decades of ministry, it's that there's a common theme amongst Christians today when it comes to their troubles with the church. When people come to this church from another church, very oftentimes they feel compelled to tell me why it is they have left their other church, which is usually not helpful, but they feel compelled to tell me anyway. And here's what they tell me. They tell me that you know, there's, you, you don't hear 
people don't say, well, you know, I went to such and such a church for a while, but I don't go there because, you know, the, the doctrine was incorrect or, you know, the, 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 all the things that would make a person run out the doors of a church, I would say, you know, rightfully so. That's not what I hear. What I hear is, I hear I want to be known. I want to be cared for. I want to have real relationships. And what I experienced there was shallow. It was fake. It wasn't real. People don't really care for one another, which is what they're saying is they don't really care for me. Nobody's ever said, well, I didn't really care for them. They never say that. And so what does it tell you? And even, even here, you know, we're far from perfect. And so when people get grumbly around here, what do they say? Well, I'm just trying to find community or, you know, I just want to be in a, I just want to be in a place that's genuine, authentic, and real. And, you know, I want to find a group that's this or it's that. You know why that is? It's because... Everybody wants that. But it's hard to find. It's hard to experience. It's hard to have. See, we want it, but we don't do the things to get it, and then we complain because we don't have it. Think about it. If we're honest, we really do want it. See, because when our troubles come, when we're, when, we're, when we're in trouble, we want, we know instinctively that we, we need, that people who understood and loved us and cared for us would be helpful in the situation. But it's expensive. And we realize that Maybe in that moment we wish we had it, but what we realize is, is that really we should have invested in that earlier. We should have established that prior to. You see, what blocks us from achieving that is weakness. Weakness blocks dependence. So see, we live in a culture where our solution for suffering is try harder. Our solution for sickness is be tougher. Our solution for sin is be more disciplined. But are those really solutions? You see, the gospel teaches us that weakness is the key to dependence. Dependence is the key to experiencing the power of God in our troubles. Weakness is the key to dependence. Dependence is the key to experiencing the power of God in our troubles. Listen, if you open up your Bible to the book of Psalms, there will, this will be the clearest place that you will see this. You read the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, and here's what you will universally find in the book of Psalms. You will find the Psalms are written by people who have a posture of dependence. 
They're facing all sorts of difficulty, trials, struggles of all kinds. Every emotion under the sun is represented in the book of Psalms. You can find depression to exhilaration. You can find the lowest low and the highest high and everything in between. But the consistent thread throughout the entire book is Psalms are written by people who depend on God and who are totally open and honest about what? Their weakness. And the reason why the Psalms are so helpful and so comforting and so instructive is because we get to read from people who are exhibiting exactly what I'm talking about. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, now, you see, some of you are still on the fence, and I, I, I'll get to you. Trust me. I'm going to get everybody off the fence this morning. No matter how resistant you are to what I'm saying, how can we embrace our weakness? How can we do this? And this, the answer to the question will sound so profound, so unexpected. How do we embrace our weakness? We, we must embrace the gospel. See, you could have answered that. You knew I was going to say that. And you're thinking, come on. That's your answer? That's my answer. Now let me get the rest of you off the fence. Let's talk for a second about this. What is the gospel? What does the gospel say? The gospel says God is good. God is all-powerful. God is wise. The gospel says that this good and powerful and wise God created us in His image, and in doing so, He gave us all the dignity and value we will ever need. Now, hasn't it been interesting that almost every single week through the book of James, I mean, you know, it seems like forever ago, but it wasn't that long ago when, you know, I'll never read the book of James without thinking of being a televangelist for all those weeks. You know, that was just terrible. I still have nightmares about those puppets looking back at me, you know. But how many times in the book of James have I gone back and used the narrative from Genesis to explain what James is trying to teach us and the, the, the way that it's become so relevant in our current situation. And yet here we are again. You see, this good and powerful and wise God created us in His image. And in doing so, He gave us all the dignity and value we'd ever need. Then what happens? But in spite of that, we sinned against God and sin against each other. And we are all deeply broken by sin. But that doesn't change what God did. No matter how much sin is in our lives, it doesn't change who God is, and it doesn't change what God did. I want you to think with me for a moment. God did not make Adam and Eve, and then at some later point after sin entered in or at some point in the narrative, he then sort of remakes them in his own image. How did it go down? 
God made them in his image before they had done anything. You got that? That's very important for you to understand if you want to get what I'm trying to tell you this morning. You have to get that. We are image bearers before we have ever done a single thing. Therefore, because that beautiful truth is in the gospel, there's nothing we can do to undo what God has done. Nothing. You see, you can't sin so much that you're no longer made in the image of God. Do you know that? You see, you, you're not made in the image of God because you behave in such a way that looks in some way like God. You know that? You're made in the image of God regardless of anything that you do. You just are. That's very clear in the Scripture. So your value and your dignity are grounded and founded and embedded in something that God embedded in you prior to you accomplishing anything. So you're not valuable. You don't have dignity because you behave in a certain way. Does it feel that way today? Do we behave that way today? See, what we've done is we've taken that truth and we've twisted it around. And what ought to be true is that because we know that our value and dignity are unchangeable and unshakable, then every day of our life, in Christ, we're free to press ever deeper and deeper and deeper into our brokenness and experience the healing power of God. You see that we're in this process called sanctification. And this process of becoming more and more like Christ goes all the way until we take our last breath in this life. We never, ever reach perfection in this life. But that's only if our identity is grounded in the gospel, if we truly believe the gospel. What happens is, is that most people today find their value and their dignity in their jobs. You see, they might say, what we do is we say, we espouse with our words. That, oh no, you know, I'm a child of God and that's where I... But you don't live that way. And the truth about you is not what you say, it's what you do. It's your life. That's what James has been teaching us. And so you'll rarely meet a person whose value is not wrapped up in their job, in their marriage, in their family, I mean, in their parenting, in their bank account, in their success in their accomplishments, in their looks. It's somehow tied to some grid of performance. And you see, anything 
other than the gospel. See, only the gospel offers unconditional value and dignity. Everything else in the world is conditional. Everything. And so all the things that most of us find our value and dignity in are conditional things. And we find ourselves trying so hard not to, and yet here we are running around like a hamster in a wheel. And these things, they produce insecurity in us because we're only as valuable as we are successful. We're only valuable. We only have dignity if we're doing a good job, if we're behaving well, if things are going according to the, the plan. So what happens is everyone's insecure because we're always under pressure to perform because our performance tells us our value. And every single thing in this culture points you to that. You are a fool if you're a mom in here today and you don't think that you live for the performance of your children. You're a fool. You know you do. If you're a dad and you don't live for the performance of your job or how hard you work, how you provide, Young people, everything is, is image conscious. Everything is uh, on display all the time. So we can never be weak around others. No, you can't do that. That's the last thing you want to do. So we never experience the blessing of dependence. We never be like the psalmist. We won't be like them. Yet James tells us Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Who's living like Elijah? You know why? You know the difference between Elijah and all of us is? He had the same nature as we. He was just a normal, everyday person. His posture of dependence. Pick somebody. King David. Solomon. Paul. James. Dependence. All we want is independence. We don't want to hear anything about dependence. We reject dependence. So what happens is we have these conditional identities. They produce insecurity, which then produce projected strength, which then produces pseudo-self-sufficiency, which then produces frustration and ultimate failure. You can't win. No matter how good you are, somebody else is better. No matter how good you are today, your time is going to pass. You're going to get old. You're going to break down. 
You're not going to be able to sustain it. You're not going to be able to keep up with it. You're not going to be able to. And then you just trade it in for something else you can't trade. And it's just a never-ending cycle. See, a couple weeks ago, I, this just hit me square in the face. I was thinking about how James ends this. And so Jeff called me and invited me to come to celebrate recovery. And uh, he said, hey, Pastor Tony, if you're available Monday night, why don't you come to celebrate recovery? Because we're going to be giving out some 24-month coins and some 36-month coins. It's a big deal, you know. And I was like, okay. So it worked out to where I could be there. So, so I come up to the church that Monday night, and uh, I walked in to the meeting, and I go in the back, and I sat down. And so for the first 30 minutes, I was there. No one even knew I was in the room. I was just observing. And it was amazing because when I first walked in, I could sense this feeling in the room. I liked it. I'm sensitive to the, the room, to what's going on in the room. I'm always examining the countenance of the face of the people. I usually have a pretty good handle on what's going on in the room before I ever even step up here. The whole time we're singing, I'm just taking it in. What you doing, God? I could feel it that night in that room. But I didn't know exactly what it was. And at first, I was overwhelmed with sort of with sorrow and pity. You know, I'm looking around the room and I'm, I'm listening to these stories and I'm thinking, man, this is just breaks my heart, you know, and, and these, these difficult things that people go through and, you know, that, uh, the, the struggle with addiction and, and all these things. And I mean, it was just, you know, it was hard. But, but then something changed. Then I realized, that's, wait a minute, that's not, that's not it. What, what is it? And it dawned on me that everyone in the room had a common posture. You see, when you walk into a Celebrate Recovery meeting, when you walk through the door, you're walking through the door is a declaration that I'm broken, I got problems, and I need help. Because if I didn't, I wouldn't be here. And everyone there... It's declaring the same thing. No one's coming in to celebrate recovery and saying, yo, guys, just didn't have anything to do tonight, but uh, I got this all totally handled. Is anybody doing that? They're not doing that. And it, when that permeates a group of people, man... Something powerful happens. And so I'm on the outside looking at what's happening. Feeling disconnected from it. And then it dawns on me, Nicole. 
wait a minute. I need to be here. See, we don't have a support group for my addiction. But we should. See, people will stand up and say, you know, I'm so-and-so, and this is my journey and my story. And, and I realized I should stand up. I should say, Hi, my name's Tony, and I'm a prideaholic. You know what? I, uh, I work really, really hard. And I find a lot of my value and worth in my work ethic. And you know what I do? I, if I'm not careful, will worship at the throne of knowledge and information. Not for the right reason. But because I like to have the right answers. See, there, there needs to be a support group for my besetting sins. I need people to hold me accountable for my besetting sins. Then I thought about something. I drove away from CR thinking to myself, hmm. It's strange. How is it that we would walk into the doors of the church and say, What's up, people? I got this handle. Look how good we look. Oh, man, you dress yourself up and come in here on Sunday morning like you got it all together. But you see, the thing is, is that when you pull into the parking lot of this church, it's a declaration that you're broken and you need help. Because if you're not broken and you don't need help, what are you doing here? You're in the wrong place. This place exists for people who are broken and need help. And subconsciously, we all know that, yet we work so hard to show up like we got it all together. And we wonder why we struggle for community. You see, the very act of going to church is inseparable from the declaration I'm broken. I can't fix myself. I need help. Therefore, 
Coming to church is embracing the gospel message unless unless we change the narrative. Unless we adjust the story just ever so slightly. You see, what we do is we We shift it just a little bit. And there's this pervasive lie that we must defend against at all costs. And it says, well, once I was broken, but then I found Jesus, and now I'm good. Could somebody please show me that in the Bible? Do you know what the gospel of our culture is? That message right there. We actually can create a situation that what we have is we have people who come into church. See, some of you, a few, let's be honest, very few, you came in here this morning, and if anybody asks you, hey, well, why'd you come to church this morning? You probably burst into tears. You probably hadn't made it this far in the service without crying already. because, And you'd say, I'm broken. And I'm a mess. And I need God. And I need Him to help. I need Him to help me. But what is the rest of us saying? See, we're saying, well, there was a time in my life when I was a mess. So then when we, so here's when you people who are embracing your brokenness, you come to us and say, I'm broken. I need help. We go, well, let me help you. You see, because I once was like you, but now God has fixed me. So let me impart my wisdom on you that will solve all of your problems. You see, think, think of a very familiar verse like Philippians 1.6. See, he who began a good work, notice it's he began, right? He began. And when will the work be completed? And according to the Bible, is anybody here reached the completion point? And the answer is, that's a negative. You haven't. And the truth of the matter is, is that that's not what happened at all. What happened was you were really broken. And you didn't find God. God found you. And He saved you. And He cleansed you. And He forgave you. And now He tolerates you and me. In fact, we're so jacked up that He put His Spirit within us so that we could never be apart from Him because 
That would be a complete disaster. So he goes everywhere with us, always trying to compel us to do the right thing, and we still don't do it. But we become really good at acting like we can. But really the only thing that's changed is that we've cleaned up our behavior a lot and all of our sins are still just as grievous and heinous. They're just below the surface. You can't see them anymore unless you look real closely. See, we don't have support groups for most people because people wouldn't come. But really, what, it, what this is is a support group. And no one should ever come into this room, ever, refusing to acknowledge that you are deeply broken. And you never go a single day of your life without being broken. And what we need is a posture of dependence. And the power of God would be unleashed in our troubles. And then I started thinking about this. I started thinking about my own salvation and conversion. And I started thinking about how God changed me and saved me. And I started thinking about how maybe the reason why I experienced the power of God so powerfully in the beginning. And it's so elusive now is because in the beginning, I was fully embracing my weakness. And the longer down the journey I travel, the more I can convince myself that I'm not weak. So with that in mind, I want you to listen as I read this text again. Because you'll realize that without a posture of dependence, there's no point in going through what this text is saying. Because it will never be a reality in anyone's life. But if we're embracing our weakness and in a posture of dependence upon God and we hear through that lens, if any among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing psalms. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You see, if, if we had to boil the book of James down to one word, if someone said in one word, what is the book of James about? It would be very simple. Faith. The whole book has been about what is real faith versus dead faith. How does real faith control its tongue? How does real faith control its emotions? How does real faith? It's all about faith. And then it all comes back in the end to this passage of Scripture that if you don't get this, this would seem like, well, where is this coming from? But it's James saying, you've been on this faith journey, and now the culmination of this faith journey is, this is your story. Live out of this story. Don't change the story. Don't try to make the story something that it's not. Live from your real, true story. You and me have value and dignity not because of anything we've done, anything we're doing right now, or anything we'll do in the future. It is 100% predicated on the fact that we are made in the image of a good, powerful, sovereign God who did that before we'd done anything. And if our identity is found in anything other than that, we will be frustrated and we will fail. And the power of God will not be evident in the midst of our troubles. And Lord knows we got troubles.